Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. Peer advantage is this idea of being more selective, strategic, and structured about the people who surround us, right? And what is that based on? Our purpose, our goals. And I think the more we're fixated and fixed on, you know, why we are doing what we're doing, um, the better. I think of the best leaders are at least ones who are committed to learning and growing. Leo Batari is the founder and managing partner of Pure Innovation LLC. Leo is an award-winning author of three books, including Peer Innovation, What Peer Advisor Groups Can Teach Us About Building High-Performance Teams. Leo's first book, which he co-authored with Leon Shapiro, The Power of Peers, How the Company You Keep Drives Leadership, Growth, and Success, explored why peer groups for CEOs and business leaders are so effective. His second book, What Anyone Can Do, How Surrounding Yourself with the Right People Will Drive Change, Opportunity, and Personal Growth, Examine the power of enlisting and engaging the complete circle of the people who surround us to get what we want in life. Leo is also a keynote speaker, workshop facilitator, podcast, Rutgers University adjunct professor, and CEO World Magazine advisory board member and opinion columnist. Please enjoy today's interview with today's person of purpose, Leo Batari. Hello, Leo Batari. Welcome to People of Purpose podcast. Wonderful to see you here today. Ah, great to be here, Tanner. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So you do a lot of things related to creating like peer groups and piecing the right people together to create an amazing experience and have a bigger impact. I'm really interested in your work. You you were introduced to me through Alexander Keenan um, with Win Mastermind, who's been a previous guest. And uh, I think that you make a lot of really great points in your work about how important it is to build the right type of organization. Um, I guess I want to start with talking about your book. You, you, talk, you tell this story in chapter six of Peer Innovation about a guy named Roy. Um, yeah. And you make the difference between what a, a leader who's part of the team instead of a part of the team. Um, could you explain kind of that important distinction and how that leads into kind of the work that you, you're focused on today? Yeah, and, and it's the difference between a leader who considers him or herself a part of the team, where we're all in it together, versus apart from it, where all of a sudden I'm on this side of the desk, everyone else is over there, and we're playing the blame game, and it's people playing, feeling like they're playing defense and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roy was a um, – so when I graduated – uh, college. I had a job that was starting at the time with Senator Paul Songress, but it wasn't starting until October. And when we got out of school in Florida, it was actually um, like third week of April. So I had quite a bit of time where I figured I had to make some money and I to, needed a car and everything else. So I took a job at a car dealership uh, and Roy was the sales manager there. And Roy was an absolute just chain smoking tyrant who would walk around that place. If he sensed a hint of inactivity, uh, he would literally take a phone book and throw it at you. Um, Like not just toss it to you. He would throw it at you and basically say, Hey, call 15 landscapers and sell somebody a truck. Um, And it was just that kind of 
<laughs> command and control, you know, environment. I'm here, you're there. And it was just, it was just brutal. Um, and there's some funny stories about Roy in the book that, that we can leave to that. But I think to your question, um, it gave me a sense of, you know, of course, years later, you, you kind of don't connect these dots until later on, as we know, right? It wasn't like right. I, I came to some epiphany at the moment at, you know, 22 years old that, oh, you know, Roy is really a part from the team, not a part, you know, of it. Um, but in later years, I kind of recognized uh, that leadership style and, and what that can do and why it can be so difficult to create any kind of culture of accountability that doesn't feel anything like putting people on the defensive, right? Mm -hmm. This I any culture of accountability, I think, worth its salt should empower people. It should help them be successful. It shouldn't be mm -hmm. onerous. It should be something that, um, you know, is is by design uh, brings people together and puts them, you know, on the path to remembering why they're there. And this is why your podcast interested me so much, because this idea of purpose Mm -hmm. really becomes so central to everything, whether it's psychological safety, whether it's accountability, whether it's productivity, whatever that may mean. Once we remember why we're here and what we're doing, we can kind of give up, you know, the ego and the insecurities and other such things that can come into play. It can become really powerful. But yeah, this idea and, and basically the way the idea um, kind of developed and evolved was really through work with a gentleman named Dave Logan. Dave Logan wrote a book called Tribal Leadership. He was the co-author, was a number of other authors involved with it. And, and Tribal Leadership is a really uh, terrific book. And one of the things you'll find in that book is that Dave Logan and his co-authors were very excited about triads. The idea of, you know, if you if in your company, for example, if you're thinking, OK, there's a special project I want to do, uh, don't put two people on it, put three people on it, you know, uh, two people can tend to kind of agree quickly to a course of action and move forward where three people might be more considered about their options. You know, right. it, it oftentimes solves communication issues. It does a lot of different things. So when we started looking at the power of triads and thinking about it with regard to groups and teams, we saw the leader as one part of the triad, right? We saw the individual member as another part of the triad. And then the third part is the group or team as an entity in and of itself becomes that third piece. Right. And all it does is just recognize and acknowledge the fact that every member of that triad has a shared responsibility for the outcome. So whatever that outcome is, so as it's expressed, you've seen the triad and there's obviously there's a middle triangle, right? That is, and it's mm -hmm. the idea that the three hold up whatever purpose or whatever goal uh, we're looking at. It could be uh, how productive we are. It could be how much fun the team has. It could be anything, but everybody owns a piece of it. And once you recognize that we're kind of all in it together, we're all gonna win together, laugh together, cry together, whatever it happens to be, and that we are there for one another. Uh, we've found that by far, when you look at the most high performing groups, um, and I talk about groups in terms of peer advisory groups for CEOs and business leaders, or high performing teams and companies, this idea of the bond that the team members share with one another, including the leader, is, is most certainly a real uh, distinguishing factor. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. What is it about um, three specifically and not four or five or six that you think makes it so effective um, in this tribal leadership? Well, I think the odd number certainly prevents ties, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> so when we have four, we may be two to two and we might be locked in on something. Um, three is oftentimes, uh, you know, it's the other th- aspect of three is that let's say if we had a third person in this podcast and you asked me a question and I started answering the question, but the person who is that third person is thinking, Leo, I know what Tanner's trying to ask you and you're answering something completely different. He might halt that conversation right in that moment and say, Leo, what Tanner is really asking you was such and such. Ah, I get it. Thank you. And it puts us back on track quickly as opposed to us doing a back and forth, trying to figure out why we're misfiring, you know, on something. So I think that's where, in many respects, the idea of three, you know, can come in as well. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. So you're up at 7 a.m. in California doing this interview, talking about these concepts what is it that feels so purposeful to you about devoting so much of your career to helping helping these teams get developed? Yeah, well, seven o'clock is like the middle of my day. I, I've <laughs> been up since before five and I love getting up every day to do what I do. Um, and the reason is, and you know, in many respects, it started for me in, in graduate school when I was a member of a cohort. And for the, so for the first time, I'm part of this learning ensemble, right, where the whole program was designed on one hand. Yes, you learn from the instructors. Yes, you learn from the material. But the real construct of it afforded us the ability to probably learn more from one another than from anything, any other source. And that was by design. And I was really intrigued by that because, as I've mentioned many times um, <laughs> My learning experience prior to that when I was in college, undergraduate or high school was, um, you know, collaborative learning would have been called cheating, you know, back when you're just, you know, the the idea was that, um, you know, you take the test, you're shielding your paper from everyone else, you do, it was a very much, here's the teacher, I'm learning it, I take it, I regurgitate it back, or I write a paper, or I take a test, or whatever. It wasn't about people coming together and really having deep conversations about what we were learning in a way that it afforded us to understand things more deeply. So when I went through that experience in graduate school, it opened me to understanding when a job became available at Vistage to head up corporate communications there, because that was largely my background, was corporate communications and PR for about 25 years. I thought to myself, wow, I love what they do, which is they assemble and facilitate peer advisory groups for CEOs and business leaders uh, in over 20 countries around the world. Um, But you know, just the idea of being able to work at a particular organization that I think is quite purposeful and and have a role in moving that brand down the field a little bit was really intriguing to me. So I was there for over six and a half years. And it was actually during that time where it was probably late 2012. I started there in May of 2010. And in late 2012, I led a brand refresh at the company. And so here we are, we're looking at at our brand and I'm interviewing CEOs and business leaders all over. And I would ask them, how do you learn? How do you grow? How do you bring new thinking into your organization? And they would always tell me things like, well, I read books. Um, I have a consultant, uh, I have a coach. Uh, we, you know, we have, um, you know, I go to events and conferences. We go to executive development programs at Harvard Stanford. Nobody was mentioning peer advisory group as even part of their consideration set for how they learn and grow. And I thought to myself, wow, I've seen this work for so many CEOs and business leaders. And yet, as a percentage of the total people who could participate in these groups, it's minuscule, right? So I'm thinking, 
this is an unbelievable resource that people need to know about. So when the brand refresh was done and I was reporting out to the board of directors about the rollout and where we were and what was going on, I said to them, you know, Vistage has been doing this work since 1957. And there's been a lot of organizations that have been in it for quite a long time as well. And all of us are trying to sell a Mercedes to someone who doesn't even know what a car is. So I thought, what if we stepped back and didn't write a hardcover brochure about Vistage and talk about how great we are and what we do and all this other stuff, but to actually look at the entire category. A, it would be a great learning experience for us, but B, we could really look at what peer advisory groups around the world were doing and try to talk in terms of how and why these are so effective and create a book that was kind of non-denominational in that way, right? It wasn't um, promoting a particular organization or anything like that. It was just basically saying that if peer advisory groups aren't part of your consideration set for learning and growing, they really should be. And here's why. And that's where the power of peers came from in 2016. And and I think once that happened and from there, I've developed a workshop that I've now conducted well over 200 times uh, with peer groups um, and with some organizational work teams as well. And you see it work and you see what happens and you see what a unifying experience it is when you see the difference it makes, not only in people's businesses, but in their lives. Uh, that's a pretty exciting thing to get up for every day. So that's what I do. Right, for sure. As you were doing this brand refresh and leading this brand new venture, how are you utilizing peer groups to help you define what was possible and and maximize your effectiveness as you reached out to these folks? Yeah, it's a great question. When I was at Vistage, I was actually a member of two peer advisory groups. One of them was um, what they call a key executive group that I was a member of for over five years. And uh, my group was extremely helpful, you know, in talking about not only what I was doing around the rebranding, but afterwards and what it would look like in terms of how to take this content and really be an evangelist for it uh, going forward. Uh, I was also part of what they referred referred to as a Vistage Inside Group, where there are peer advisory groups, for example, where if you're an employee of a company, you may be a member of an outside group that could include people from within your industry sector, or maybe it includes people in the case of Vistage and other such organizations like Renaissance Executive Forums or EO or YPO, where the people would be from completely different industries from your own. So it opens you up to a world of all kinds of things that get your head out of your own company and your own business and get you involved, you know, in, in other areas like that. And so, but Vistage Inside Group, on the other hand, takes place inside your company. Where now all of a sudden, let's say in my case, I was a VP there. Um, I have, was part of a group with other VPs in other cross-functional areas in the company. So you had HR and finance and sales and other such you know, disciplines represented. And we would come together and we'd talk about how we can collaborate more effectively. What are the kinds of things that we're learning that we can share with others in the room? How do we take, for example, what, um, you know, we may have gotten out of a learning and development day and actually operationalize it, right? So these groups can often serve as a mechanism for actually making things really happen in your organization as opposed to kind of learning all this great stuff and and a month later, nobody's talking about it anymore. So, um, but I was a member in both those groups and in both cases, um, 
you know, they had their different role, obviously. Um, some was, were inside the company and very familiar with what I was doing, some outside the company and it was different. Mm -hmm. um, but both offered incredibly great perspectives that were really helpful in me developing things. So yeah, right. peer groups are really essential to that. Yeah, I love that idea that the peer groups help you operationalize. Like when you have this big epiphany or learning experience together, it's often very hard to find out how to integrate that into this machine that's like already still moving as it as it has been. Um, and when you, you know, insert the peer groups, it helps you operationalize that. What do you think that the peer groups do uniquely around um, establishing a sense of like unified collective purpose in an organization? Do they play a key role in that area? They do. Um, so first, let's talk about the difference between a group and a team. Uh, a group basically is designed for the benefit of the individual members, right? So I join a group because I want to be a better leader, or maybe I want to take things back to my organization or whatever. A team comes together to create a shared work product or to do something that only a team can do together, right? Um, so with that, when you consider the fact that what groups are designed to do, this is why groups inside companies, I think can be so incredibly effective, is that they help make better individual team competitor, uh, team contributors, right? So okay. in other words, if I can be part of a group and I can hone my skills and get better and better and better at being a leader or being or whatever my craft may happen to be, and I can bring that to my team and be a stronger contributor, that's where the group plays a big role. And the group, I think, really is constantly reinforcing the purpose and why we're here and, and what it's all about. And, uh, you know, I, I find it to be kind of another reinforcing element of things when it comes to recognizing, um, you know, our purpose. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. Um, so what is it about when the research we did, you talked about kind of the power of like kind of enlisting and engaging a complete circle of people who surround us to get what we want in life. Can you kind of talk about kind of on a more macro scale, how, peer groups really play a role in allowing you to kind of elevate and execute on your sense of purpose? Yeah. Um, so what you're talking about actually comes from the second book um, called What Anyone Can Do. And it, it was kind of interesting because, it, it, you know, the power of peers was really about formal peer groups and truly peers, right? The second book talked about the fact that and actually, the title, What Anyone Can Do, comes from a quote from Joe Henderson in a book he wrote in 1976 called The Long Run Solution. Joe Henderson is a former editor of Runner's World. And Joe Henderson basically said, if you look at really successful runners or successful people in general, he said, these people aren't like capable of leaping tall buildings in a single bound. It's not like they're superhuman in any way. He said, in most cases, they do the things that anyone can do that most of us never will. Right. And so I started exploring not just formal peer groups, but the broader circle of people who surround us, right? The people who are, who, who we help, right? Or the people who help us, right? Our, our mentors, our teachers, our mentees, our family mm -hmm. members, our friends, our coworkers, this whole circle of the people who surround us and how they influence and shape our behavior. Um, a concept that we came up with in the first book was really, it wasn't, we were trying to suggest that this is much more than peer influence that we know is extremely powerful and very pervasive, right? Uh, but that peer advantage is this idea of 
being more selective, strategic, and structured about the people who surround us, right? And what is that based on? Our purpose, our goals. What do we want to do? How do we want to make a difference in life? And how do we want to surround ourselves with the right people to make that possible? I think part of it is those informal relationships that I talked about, but also you can even take it to the next level and be even more intentional about it by joining a peer group that can help you where you're helping others, right? Which is, you know, part of being purposeful as well, but they can also help you in terms of achieving your purpose in life also. So I think it's a combination uh, of the two. And I think the more we're fixated and fixed on, you know, why we are doing what we're doing, um, the better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. One thing I'm really interested in as part of a bigger vision for what people of purpose can become is to, to allow everyone to kind of uh, feel fulfilled and, and really um, aligned with their sense of individual purpose. And then to combine that with other people who are living aligned to their individual purpose to create a community um, of sorts where, where it's kind of this regenerative effect where everyone's getting more elevated in their sense of purpose because the people you're surrounded are are part of that circle of purpose as well in your life and you each have unique roles and contributions to it um and together you can achieve more it's it's a really interesting concept that i think um you don't really tap into until you you know you kind of have your own organization that you're piecing people together and I guess my question is like, how, how is like becoming an entrepreneur and doing these things different than kind of doing these things inside of an organization? Is there any differences for you? Um, yes. Um, you have to be more intentional about seeking people's input and advice and help and all of that. Mm-hmm. It's not automatically around you. This is not um, a situation where by design you are working as part of a team. You know, I have to create my own um you know, infrastructure, if you will, around all that, both formally and informally. So, you know, I, I know how valuable it is. I know how important it is. I know how, what it can mean. And, and again, not just for me and how I can benefit from, you know, picking up the phone or um, and talking with an individual or getting a few people on, on the phone and having an formal peer group conversation about certain things or being part of a formal group, right? Um, I just know what it can mean and how valuable it is. I've seen, I can't tell you how many thousand times I've seen somebody bring something to a peer group and say, all right, I've got this challenge in front of me and I have choice A and B and I have to figure out which one to choose. And literally nine times out of 10, that person finds out that they don't have choice A and B at all. They have choice A, B, C, D, and E that they never even would have come up with in a million years unless yeah. they were able to talk through what they're dealing with. And they find out they have far more options they have ever imagined. You know, one of the, the templates I use actually to tell um, for case studies for peer groups is literally a peer acronym, right? Where we do a bit of a preface and, and you someone sets up the situation. Here's what was going on. Here's kind of what we were dealing with, right? Um, then they define what their expectation is of the group. Like, so for example, um, if they believe they want the group to help them choose between A and B, their expectation is that they will help them do that. Their experience, however, was that once they brought it to the group, they realized they had more options than they ever imagined. And then the R of this uh, acronym becomes the result. Uh-huh. So what happened now that you you did that? So it's a pretty easy construct that uh, allows for people to, I think, easily understand um, 
you know, what we're talking about, what the expectation was, what the experience was with the group, mm. and, and then the result that was achieved, um, you know, because of it. And so uh, it's, it's, it shows you and how I think they're unbelievably effective. It's just amazing stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I was, uh, one of my most recent guests, um, was a president of a chapter of EO. He was like the president of the EO Colorado chapter. And he invited me on a, a rafting trip with a bunch of EO guys. Um, and it was really cool because there was a group of six of them that were in what's called like an EO forum. So it's kind of a small group that does a weekly call yep. and it goes way, it goes way beyond what, whatever business challenge they're focused on. It, it goes deeply into their personal life, their relationships, their kids, their family, all that. Um, and those guys time and time again, talk, told me how important it is to have these people in there that they know are in your corner that really kind of show you your blind spots. And as as you hear about what other people are going through, you get insights into your own situation that you never would have perceived had you been trying to figure it out on your own. Um, it's just yeah, it's such a testament to how important these things are. Well, and you're defining what we talked about right at the very beginning. When we think about that triad model and we think about being a part of the team versus apart from it. You know, the people who participate in that group don't go there having to play defense and explain themselves about why they didn't or didn't do things. It's much more about having a group of people who are there to help you realize what you've already expressed you want for yourself. You just know you have people behind you to help you make that possible. And, and that's where, where that comes in. It's, it's kind of the public declaration of here's what I want to do. Here's where I want to take my life. Here's what I want to do. Uh, with my company, here's how I want to make a difference <clears throat> and know that the construct of that group is such that everybody's there for everyone to help them be successful. And that's the kind of culture of accountability that, uh, you know, I've seen in groups in really high performing groups. And quite frankly, I've seen it work inside companies as well. And when you have companies that can achieve uh, a culture of accountability that looks like that, versus one that is very much about threats and all about just KPIs and playing defense and uh, pleasing the boss. It just is, it's not nearly as good. Yeah. It seems like it takes a lot of um, humility from the leader of, or the, you know, the organizer of these groups. How, what, what kind of um, mindset shifts or exercises are important if you're someone that's like, I definitely need this, but a lot of my, personality and leadership style is very much like, you know, more traditional, like I'm the boss. These are the things I want done. Here's my expectation. How do you become part of the team when you already have that kind of dynamic? Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, I think that the leaders that I think are the best leaders are at least ones who are committed to learning and growing. So when you start looking at some of the top leadership scholars in the world, look at Jim Cousins and Barry Posner and the Leadership Challenge or, or read, you know, Good to Great and other books by Jim Collins and people like that, you're going to find a common thread of what that takes or, or, or read the countless books about servant leadership. The idea that as the leader, uh, you are there to serve the team. They're not there to serve you. And when you can wrap your head around that mindset, again, not letting go of personal ego, right? But recognizing the broader purpose, recognizing performance, recognizing the fact that this will work better if I actually allow my team 
<laughs> and, and give them the resources to be successful and, and them to work versus me hovering over them and micromanaging and be command and control. If I leverage the assets of the incredible people uh, that I have working in this group or this organization or on this team, uh, you just get an infinitely better result. And I think just as a practical matter, you have to kind of step back for a moment and think about what do I want to have happen here? And mm -hmm. so I think when you do that, that can be really helpful uh, in creating some mindset shifts, right? We don't all have to be like Roy, like we talked about at the beginning. It doesn't have to be mm. maybe throwing the telephone book at someone is not going to inspire as much sales as uh, other uh, ways of leading, right? So, uh, and by the way, what's really interesting about that is people tend to oftentimes in, in certain situations, in very short-term situations, or someone comes in and just bup, 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 and they're telling people what to do, and there's this very command and control um, structure. It, it can work for the short term, and sometimes it can even be necessary. Longer term, though, in terms of our relationship with our people and how we lead and what psychological safety needs to look like, what accountability needs to look like, uh, I think we need to think about that very differently. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. How do you, um, as you're hiring and building your team, how do you, um, what do you kind of look for in, in the talent pool, in the interview process? To, how do how do you identify those like assets about people and how do you put them together in a strategic way that makes sense for building a, a peer group within it, within your organization? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when we're looking at hiring, you know, in our companies, one of the things that's really important to understand is what's the difference between the person who makes it in this organization and the person who doesn't? I don't know anyone who's been in business for any length of time who's had to hire people who hasn't um, been in a situation where they had a great resume. Uh, the person came and interviewed. They were amazing. Everyone on the team loved them. You hired them. And three to four months later, if it took that long, you recognize, wow, this is not working at all. And it's, it's bad for us. It's bad for the person. It's bad all the way around, right? And it isn't because they're so bad. It's because they just are not a good fit for how we do things in this company. It's not a good cultural fit in the organization. So to recognize what does it take to be successful here? One of the stories that I'll that I tell frequently is about Gina Oriyama, um, head coach of the University of Connecticut women's basketball team. I'd, I'd say arguably the most successful program in all of college sports right now, men or women. Right. Um, when you look at one of the things that they discovered, obviously, in addition to hire, to hiring, to recruiting uh, really talented players who are competitive and have the skills and all that, that's all well and good. But the difference between the kid who gets recruited to Connecticut and the one who doesn't has less to do with how many points a game they can score and oftentimes more to do with whether that person is can be a good teammate or not. And one of the ways they came to assess that uh, is watching a kid play high school basketball when they're recruiting them. And they not only watch what happens when they're on the floor, but inevitably, soon, some point in the game, the kid's going to be put on the bench for a couple minutes just for a breather, and then she'll get back out there. He says there's basically two kinds of kids. There's one kid that will throw a towel over her head and just 
you know, just try to get rested and be ready to get back out there when the coach is ready to put her back out on the floor. And then there's the other kid who's on the edge of her seat, yelling out encouragement and instructions to the other players and staying involved in the game, even from the sideline. He said the second kid is, um, is more rare than you think. Uh, but it can be the difference between, so all things being equal, right? If you've got like two really great players and one of them clearly is demonstrating those uh, tendencies and willingness to be committed to being a great teammate to others, that's the kid that's going to be recruited to UConn. And the other kid will be playing for college ball elsewhere and probably do it very successfully and it'll be great. And again, it's good for everyone involved. I think as companies, we have to pay attention to what is it? What is that it factor that makes people successful here? How do we interview for it? How do we assess for it? And by the way, how do we make sure that we have the discipline to say no to someone who on all other counts seems like a really great candidate, but we know in this organization, it's probably best for them or for us that we take a pass. And I think that's uh, that can be d- very difficult, especially in today's uh, labor market where you continue to hear all the time how difficult it is uh, to find people. Yet at the same time, hiring the wrong people can be so detrimental in so many ways. Right. Or like it seems like hiring like B and C people that, you know, are not so wrong that it's obvious and not so good that they're having an impact. They just kind of sit around there and that's that seems to be a challenging like gray zone to do. Yeah, you need you need at the end of the day, you need good players. You know, what is interesting, though, and I actually did a a webinar yesterday uh, for a company called um, uh, Quest Corporation of America, and we talked about um, psychological safety. And, um, you know, it was really fascinating to, you know, to get into that topic and and see its impact with everything we're talking about today. Thank you for listening to part one of this interview with Leo Batari on the power of CEO peer advisory groups and how it can make a difference in your organization. Be sure to listen to next week's episode as we wrap up our conversation with Leo talking about psychological safety and its role in peer groups, as well as the value of mentorship and much more.